Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 288, recorded August 5th, 2018. So today we're continuing our new Visions issues. So today we got six and seven. John Byrne photo novels. Exactly. John Byrne, I'll go virtually anywhere as long as it's Taws and, <laughs> and do whatever stories I want. And it's sometimes it's really good, and sometimes it's kind of meh. But these two are pretty good. I like them. Yeah, yeah. Because the last two issues, he kind of did a a somewhat mud episode and a somewhat, or well, then he definitely had a number one, old number one. So it was kind of like he was doing the same thing with those two issues of bringing in something that we already know and kind of telling another story with uh, those characters. Mm-hmm. And then here he does the same thing, but. Here, both of these stories, are, I think, are a lot better than the last two we, we did last episode, in right. my opinion. Right, and I especially like issue seven. Right. So, uh, not to be spoilery, because I know you guys are waiting for us to read it to you, but uh, the first one's called Resistance, which, again, what could that a, be guest, about? a guest star about somebody or something. Hmm. And then, uh, what's the name of the next one? Oh, yeah, 1971. So, Slash. Uh, and then some forty eight sixty point two. So uh maybe something in nineteen seventy one. And something at forty eight sixty point two. Oh, I thought that might have been the star date for nineteen seventy one. No. Oh, okay. I missed that then. Because you know, I don't know my star date, so <laughs> wow. it's just a bunch of random numbers and I'm like, all right, good. That's random numbers? Everyone means an exact thing, Donovan. I know it does. Well, I know that they, it does in the in next, next gen? generation. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm pretty sure it was which, just all which, random numbers. Which Brian, which Brian explained. Yeah, but Taz, it was like whatever. Whatever the writer put in. Right. Anyway, so shall we get started uh, with uh, Resistance? Or please. Do we have any more chit It would not be futile. Do? Go right ahead. Ooh. All right, so this came out May of 2015, which I think was very shortly after uh, Leonard Nimoy passed away because there's a little dedication to him towards the beginning. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that was nice. Even though the story is not a Spock story, but it still had that little little in remembrance of. All right, so it's entitled Resistance, IDW, obviously. So the cover, again, this is all photo um, edited. Photoshop type stuff. So the cover has Kirk McCoy and Spock on the bottom of the page looking up. And then above them is a giant mechanical sphere. And then you can kind of see that it's almost the same size as the Enterprise saucer section because the Enterprise is uh, floating right above it. So the story starts with the Enterprise arriving at a colony world near the Delta Quadrant that had sent out a distress call only to find out that it has gone the way of Alderaan and has been completely destroyed. Starfleet then informs them of a few other colony worlds that have also missed their check-in times. So the Enterprise travels to a few of those, and each time they arrive, they just find an asteroid belt where the planet should have been. 
they then decide to go to the very first planet that missed their check-in and uh, see if they can find any uh, evidence of where this all started from instead of just playing catch-up as to where it's going. And they again, they find a big asteroid belt, but this time they find a big chunk of the planet is still being held together somehow. And it's large enough to have a very low gravity, and it's also still has a little bit of its atmosphere, or at least for the next hour. Kirk, McCoy, and Chekhov beam down, and they find a single survivor. He tells them that the intruders stole a mining laser from the planet and then used it against them to obviously do this uh, huge destruction. Upon beaming back up, Spock and Sulu inform them that they found a trail of radiation that they think could be used to track the alien ship. Later, they are able to actually find this little alien ship that's flying around destroying planets. It's actually a sphere of some sort, of some sort of mechanical hodgepodge. They say it doesn't look like it was built, but more grown. They go up to it and they try to put a tractor beam on it, but the craft shoots them with the planet-killing laser. Uh, they do that a couple times, and then the Enterprise is damaged so bad that it needs to back off, otherwise it'll be completely destroyed. As soon as they back off, the planet killer decides that they're not worth the effort and starts heading back towards a very populated planet. During all this, they did scan for life signs on the ship, and they found out that there's very few, and they're all dying fast due to severe radiation poisoning. So they're able to make the repairs to the Enterprise, and they come up with a way to destroy the small craft. They think that once the craft opens its planet-killing laser, that they could actually send a pulse from the warp engines at the same time that will force the laser to implode and destroy the ship. So they make preparations, and they race back to the ship just as it's arriving towards the planet that it's about to destroy. The scans now show that everyone aboard is dead, so it's all automated now. So the little craft starts to zap it with its planet-killing laser. The Enterprise shoots its warp engine power. I don't really understand what they're doing from the warp engines. But it works. The little ship explodes in a brilliant ball of green light. Later, the crew speculates on what other alien races are out in the Delta Quadrant. Then, Ahura states that she was able to decipher the alien's only outgoing transmission. It stated, resistance is futile. The end. <gasps> ah, it's the Borg! Oh, is that what it is? That's amazing. So that's supposed to be like a pilot craft of the Borg far long ago? Is that what it's supposed uh, to be? Yep. Or it could have been just... Because they kept acting like it was severely damaged and just... So maybe it got damaged and it just ended up here. Right. So, or it was some kind of scout ship. Right. It just would have been nice if Kirk would have said, hey, this kind of – Archer said that he encountered some sort of sphere <laughs> ship at one point. Right. Okay, so just remind me on Enterprise. There was a crashed ship. With the, the crashed – was it the crashed sphere ship? Yeah. From uh, First Contact? From First Contact, yeah. Okay, okay. And it didn't reconstitute itself somehow. During the uh, Enterprise it, episode, did it? Yeah, it's it started to. It, okay, it was okay. able to reconstitute itself enough to start flying back towards the Delta Quadrant. Oh, and then, gotcha. Um, okay. And then it was trying to build a communications array that it never could, and and then the Enterprise destroyed it or something. Okay, okay. Okay, there you go. Um, yeah, that would have been a good tie-in. 
if he would have mentioned that, but they didn't. So all these little glimpses of the Borg future that they keep sticking into uh, Taws. Uh, this one works okay. Uh, wasn't there like a, um, a manja one where they tried to do oh, this right. with Taws? Yeah, but boy, they, they went all in on that one. Yeah. I think they even had people being assimilated and stuff like that, which I'm pretty sure that would have made it into a Starfleet report at some point, and so Picard shouldn't be that surprised uh, when they find him. Exactly, right. But, you know, retconning, whatever. Uh, but this one was good because they, they did – it was still at arm's reach. I mean, you found right. – especially with the Hurra's thing at the end, so you know for sure what it is, although you pretty much knew looking at the sphere. Right. Um, well, and the alien – or the alien was calling about – saying something about they were – they're not mechanical and they're not uh, – they're not organic, but an amalgam. So Of both, right. Yeah, so you kind of knew – I mean obviously you knew what Well, it they was. may not – exactly, but they're not necessarily the only cyborg entities out there. That's true. But uh, looking at the sphere, it's sphere-shaped. It's black. It's got lots of little surface detail, so whatever. It's it's it. And when I first saw the cover, I thought it was actually growing out of the bottom of the Enterprise saucer section. Like a giant I, wart? Like a giant yeah, giant wart. And then <laughs> uh, – so it's like, oh my god, they're taking over the Enterprise and become fusing with the Enterprise. It's like, oh no. It just happens to be hanging out underneath the saucer section in that angle. Right. That they put together. So it's like, okay, fine. You know what's funny is that I did not even look at the cover. I just went straight into the book, and then it wasn't until I was doing the synopsis later that I was like, oh, it, it kind of shows you right here on the cover that uh, that it might be a board type thing. Exactly. And, and I mean, that that's perfect for selling it, you know, on the rack. Uh, you got something that kind of looks like a Borg sphere, and then you've got the word resistance. It's like, well, okay, it must be a Borg thing. Right. That, that'll that sell an issue or two, I can tell you. I bought it. There I'm sure go. Sure, that's – I'm their target audience. Yep. I'm not because I'd buy it anyways. <laughs> it's the guy that doesn't buy it every month that they got to try to sell it for. Yeah, like me. You have them all. Uh, yes. You're the, the guy the... that's going to buy it even if it was just the uh, clear cover that oh. you could draw your own cover on. No, not necessarily. Uh, but I'm the guy that buys the DVD that has 90% of what we read, which is <laughs> very helpful. <laughs> yeah, I think we've pretty. I think we've read all those, except for the gold key. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. That that was a great investment. Heck, best fifteen dollars I ever spent. Exactly. Back to this issue. I really like what John Byrne did with the Enterprise shots. There's a lot of uh, Pretty good angles and stuff, like when it's in the asteroid belt and mm-hmm. when it's getting shot at and stuff. That I don't think he got that from any episode. So he must have had a model or something, a 3D model or something, and positioned it in a way that he wanted to take the picture. Yeah, I wonder how much he does of that because this is mostly photo montages. But what you're what you're suggesting right there is it has a model, a digital model of the Enterprise that he's also pulling out of his bag of tricks, which would make perfect sense. But that's kind of stepping 
Well, why not? he's using all the tools he's got at his disposal. I mean, he has not to do just that Photoshopping, with the, but with the Borg ship. I mean, he somebody had to create that, and it wasn't created. Well, I mean, it wasn't on the show. Yeah, but you'll notice in a lot of these issues that the alien ships look like they were animated. They don't look good, but this does. I right. mean, it, this looks like it. It was more of a computer-generated model, or, or maybe he used. No, it looks like a computer-generated model because it isn't quite the same as what was in First Contact, right? No, no, it's it's definitely not. It as looks rougher as that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, the Enterprise does look good. Although I got to say that asteroid belt looks like a bunch of crinkled up, like gray metallic paper. Yep, um, it does. So, so the 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 asteroids look odd. But yeah, one planet it's gray paper. The next planet it's brown paper. The next the next <laughs> planet it's orange paper. <laughs> exactly. I did think the idea of a, a big chunk of the planet still being together was kind of interesting. But the fact that they beam down to it and then only at certain times would they start floating, I thought that was a little uh, that didn't make sense. Cause no, that didn't make sense at all. What, it should Sulu all have a consistent uh, a rather consistent. Um, a consistent uh, gravity. gravity. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and uh, the idea of Chekhov flying off out of control and then Kirk jumping up to grab him, it's like, yeah. well, okay, so Kirk is jumping up to grab him and that should keep the momentum going away from the ground. So how do they come back down again? Well, it's not no gravity; it's low gravity. Well, I know so it's eventually low gravity. They would come back down. Well, then why didn't Chekhov come back down on his own? And and inst- unless yeah. he was doing jumping jacks, how did he really leave the surface in the first place? It all just seemed very forced and artificial. Right. Is my point. Yeah, that's why I cut it out of the synopsis because it was just, didn't really add anything to the story. It was just nah. kind of a page filler. Exactly. I will say that the alien that they find uh, love the does wig. Look bad. Yeah, but then it looks like it was just. <laughs> He took a picture of somebody else and then threw this purple wash over the not the the coloring of the skin and the coloring of the uh, clothes, so that it's just this mask of purple and pink, and then with the white wig. Right, and the white wig is totally photoshopped on. Yeah, totally. And then uh, so those <laughs> those bone whiskers or whatever it is coming out of his chin. So are those drawn on? I'm going to guess they are. Oh, I'm sure they are. Um, anyway, so is this actually somebody from an episode or somebody that they just he just went ahead and put the wig on and everything? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Hmm. And then did the skin thing because the skin's all yeah, kind of skin's all up. crinkly. Right. I don't know. Because he's in so much pain. Pain. His planet just blew up. Pain. All right, so that did – all right, so since we're talking about this guy, when they beam down, they say that there's more than one life form. And then they get down, and they say that we've already lost seven more since we've just been down here. And then they find this one guy, and then they just beam back up. But I my fe- I got a feeling there, there might was be more, more than eight people there. Yeah. yeah. He never yeah. says there's only eight people. He says that there's – Well, this is – That's the most populated yeah. section of the – of the, the the larger rock. They're trying to keep the story going, Donovan. Yeah, I just wish they would have said something like uh, all the other life forms instead of just saying uh, several more of the life forms are now dead. Right. And then they just beam back up. Like, nothing happened. 
Yeah. But anyways, on page 15, when Scotty's there in the control room, mm-hmm. or not the control room, but the engineering room. Yeah. The guy next to him, who's wearing the the red, red pajamas, man, that that is a <laughs> ill-fitting suit. It does look kind of ill-fitting, but it looks comfortable, doesn't it? It's like going to work in your jammies. <laughs> but it's all like. It's like he got a wedgie, but it's, it's <laughs> like, like the outfit's too big for him, but he's got a wedgie anyways, and so it's just like all billowing past the butt cheeks. Oh, boy. It's it's weird. I was like, why would he use that shot? Uh, I don't know. It reminded me of the penguin from uh, Batman Returns when he when he's walking around. Oh, that's that, funny. That that's, I was thinking of the same thing. Uh, that's funny. See? I was thinking of the same thing. Uh, in the Humpty Dumpty kind of shape they gave uh, Danny DeVito. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, maybe if they would have put that raboom just a little higher to cover it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so he's uh, definitely Byrne has a lot of uh, Batman esque kind of huge lettering uh, sound effects. I never even thought about Batman when I saw these, but yeah, that even looks like that font. Exactly. That's really, hilarious. Really big, really thick. I mean, it takes up a lot of space. Right. No, you're absolutely right. I ne- and I never once thought about it being Batman, just just a big sound effect. Well, that's it, cool. Look on page 16 where the oh, Enterprise. Oh, no. I, now, now that you say that, I'm like, oh, it does. It's so cool. Bakum. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I thought it was – so that is Byrne, special guest starring at the beginning, right? I am pretty sure, and he, he shows up again in the next one too. Right, as the old prospector. Yeah, so but, uh, that's kind of cool. But that's I'm good. I'm pretty sure that's him. I, well, I, I, I'm pretty sure it is too. That, I that's up, great. looked up pictures of him, and, and uh, I see enough similarities that I think that it is him. Right. So you can see him emoting. Right. In, in, in multiple panels. <laughs> Anyway, they want our souls. They want our bodies. They're unstoppable. There's only six of them. It's funny. It's good. I like it. Byrne is reusing next-gen villains in this. Uh, right. And you know, like, a lot of people use the Borg. Borgs are a very popular, uh, nasty guy. And then Q. They reused Q in the JJ-verse uh, continuity. And the Borg. And the Borg, that's right, okay. And Khan, okay. Or no, no Khan was, uh, was Taz. Right. Uh, so that was the other way. So in that one, well, it was Reboot that used something from Taz. Okay, fine, that's, that, right. that's fair game. Um, so it's just kind of interesting how they were hodgepodging some of these things together. Right. Hey, that, wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, let's go ahead and use that. <laughs> but wait a minute, there were no... Borgs back then. Okay, fine. It doesn't matter. We'll use them anyway. Right. Well, they did the same thing with Enterprise. They had the Borg in there. They had the Ferengi yeah. in there. They, well, they did a whole bunch of things that shouldn't have been there yet. But right. Uh, well, they even had the uh, holodeck and other things like that in in Enterprise that shouldn't have existed yet. They had a holodeck. Well, they went to a they went to another pl- ship. Uh, Tucker did and. That, oh, that advanced. Had, I remember that one. That ship, had, but that was an alien ship. Holiday. Sure, sure. Yeah. But you think that if they would have saw that, then they, they may have got started on the holodeck earlier. Right. 
I doubt he beamed over and he was like, they had this holodeck. It was so cool. Yeah. Let's wait. Let's wait 200 years to build one. <laughs> or let's start working on it now and we'll be able to develop one in 200 years. Exactly. Eh, maybe. Maybe. Something I kind of got an impression of for this one is it just had a feeling with enough – the pacing of it and the length of it. It just It just kind of felt – more so than others for some reason to me, more like um, more like a 53-minute original Taws episode. It just, yeah. it just kind of felt like that. Uh, and, and I don't know, I didn't look close enough. Maybe it was even broken up into four acts, you know, uh, between the different breaks, but that it prob- that's probably not the case. But it, for just for some reason with this issue more than others, it just felt like an episode. Right. No, yeah. I mean, and, and then uh, there's, you know, when he throws in the captain's logs randomly mm-hmm. throughout, and you're like, this really feels like we just came back from a commercial. There you go. <laughs> no, I was feeling the same way. Yeah. And then um, as far as the story goes, um, they did bring up the fact that the ship could go at warp eight for a short amount of time. Yes. That's funny. So did, Which, did he actually, did he actually, okay, go, go ahead, you finish. No, go ahead. What? I'm just wondering if if Bert, maybe I'm, I'm my point is is related to that, but maybe not 100 percent that. So my point is, did Byrne actually did the quote official calculation to figure out that nine hours at warp six equals 47 minutes at warp eight? Yeah, I even thought about doing the calculations myself, but then I was like, eh. <laughs> well, but well, I'm going to just trust what? him on this one. I mean, supposedly the warp. Scale is like an exponential kind of thing, right? So, so warp so going, seven should be yeah, seven the same di- as warp six times warp six, right? Well, okay, actually, from warp one to warp two is a lot smaller jump than going from warp seven to warp eight. So it isn't okay. just it, it's an exponential thing. So as you go to the higher warp numbers, uh, the amount of speed increase is larger. Right. So if warp Supposedly. six, let's just say, is a hundred miles an hour, sure. Then warp seven should be ten thousand miles per hour. Well, I'm not sure. Yeah, something. Yes, like, I mean, exactly. Yeah, right. yeah. It should be quite a bit higher. Exactly. So, did he actually? I mean, he sure made it sound like he did the calculation, uh, which, of course, all this is made up. But still, um, did somebody like Okuda or somebody who was like officially in the know for this kind of stuff? Did somebody at some point like publish this, or was this maybe in uh, the physics of Star Trek, or or some kind of official thing, or did Byrne just pull it out of his uh, orifice? Yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, I've seen things that that show what the uh, what the calculations are. Oh, okay. So, because I've done it before, because I, I, I was always it? yeah yeah because so I was you had the curious. I do have it on an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> that I could type in the. Uh, the speed. Oh, I could type in the speed and then the time, and it would you tell you how many Bern light years. You are all you went. over it. <laughs> because one time we were doing a, a story, and I forgot what it was, and then it was like it was going to take like it, it listed off how many light years it was, and mm-hmm. he said, "Oh, well, that'll take X amount of days." And right. I was like, I never got the feeling that they were days in between. You know, in in these episodes, I never felt like it was days before you got to whatever planet you were going to. So I did the calculation and. 
and it was right. It came up. It was pretty close to uh, what what they were saying in the book from what what I was able to calculate. Hmm. I can't remember what it was, but I talked about it on on the show. But uh, but yeah, I was gonna do the same thing with this one, but I, I didn't bother. <laughs> you didn't find the uh, Excel spreadsheet <laughs> file, which you haven't seen in a while. Exactly, I didn't even search for it. So yeah, it's probably gone. Yeah. But anyways, um, but no, what I was gonna mention is that um, he says that he can give them warp eight for an hour. Okay. And then then they say, okay, that'll give us forty five minutes. What's all we need? And then later and throughout the the issue. They're going at warp eight all the time. Every time he says go to warp, it's warp eight. And I'm like, I thought he could only do it for an hour total, you know, right. not uh, not an hour at a time, right? Right. So uh, I was, I thought that was a little. Like they were taxing the engines, right? And you can't let it cool off for 30 minutes and then do it again. So uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's the way it's supposed to be or a miss. I don't know. Anyways, that's what I was going to mention. There you go. Okay. I want to mention that this seems like one of the longer intros before the title page of a comic that I've ever oh, read. It's uh, like it, it's like the thirteenth page. You're like thirteen pages. I was pages. the story was almost over, and then it was like <laughs> started showing the credits. <laughs> exactly. So the title page is about uh, is the thirteenth page, and it's like wow, this is a long lead-in. I mean, this is usually the hook period. Right. In the TV episodes. You want right. to hook the audience so you have something, some big mystery or some big event that you need to sit through this inane commercial to be able to find out how it resolves. Right. Uh, so for you without the, the without the books, the 13th page is already after they get the distress call. They go to all the planets that have been destroyed. They find the planet that has the big chunk. They beam down. They float around. They get the guy. They come back. <laughs> find the ship. It's when they finally catch up with the Borg sphere that they're like, Star Trek, resistance. Exactly. Like, wow. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I did not mention the creative team. So since we're on this page, you might as well. It's Star Trek created by Gene Roddenberry. Photo montage and story by John Byrne. Featuring concepts created by Maurice Hurley. And edits by Chris Royale. Okay. So Maurice Hurley, was he – a script writer for Next Gen that did the Borg thing? I believe so, yeah. Okay, okay. Interesting. That would make sense. Because that's the kind of things he does uh, burn uh, in other issues too. So we'll see that in the next issue also. So he's doing pretty much everything. But when he does take major characters or concepts, he usually does give some kind of a shout-out. So there you go, Maurice. Good job. All right. Anything else for this one? Um, yeah. So let me just mention. Okay. So um, Spock's deduction that the attack that turned a planet into an asteroid field must have come from the Delta Quadrant, since no people in the Alpha Quadrant have weapons that can destroy a planet. So, because the Death Star doesn't exist in this universe. Apparently so. Um, ah. Okay, but. However, we've learned actually from New Visions that the Klingons have the ability to destroy a planet, and they used it on the Triple Homeworld. Oh, good point, yeah. I just want to point that out. That was just two episodes, issues ago. Very that, wasn't that, that wasn't that long ago. 
Yeah. Boy, John Brady, you already forgot? (laughs) (laughs) Hope they'll never remember. Well, I hadn't, so I'd forgotten about that one. Yeah, so it is possible, Spock. A small problem with your logic. Okay, yeah, that's it. That's all I got. But since you brought that up, one of the things that was bothering me is that Mm -hmm. every time something new came up, Spock would just say, oh, this fits in with my new hypotheses that I was just coming up with. And then he would just explain what just happened. Right. And it was getting a little old at at like the third time he did it. Yeah. And I was just like, okay, Spock shouldn't have all the answers. And if he did have all the answers, say it before it happens, you know? Yeah, exactly. Maybe we can save some people or something. Yeah, uh, I thought that was a little ridiculous. Yeah. He does it three times. Something happens, and he's like, "Well, that that fits my hypothesis." That blah 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 blah. And you're like, "We we now know that." Thanks. It's not a hypothesis. It was fact before you said it. <laughs> kind of reminded yeah, but... me of the the guy that's that when you're watching Jeopardy with somebody, and then they give the answer, and he's like, "I knew that." Yeah. I knew that. <laughs> After the fact, yes. Yeah. Then why didn't you say it? Exactly. Yeah, but th- on the other hand, you need somebody that can explain what's going on. A lot of these stories. Sure. Yeah. No, we Let's needed go. the explanation. It was just how he always started off with, "Well, I knew this was going to happen. I just didn't tell you." There you go. It's, it fits this hypothesis that I've I've had for a long time. Just didn't let you know what it was. Exactly. Sure. I have my hypothesis here, and uh, I'm a smart guy. All right. That's all. That's it for this one for me. All right. I'm good too. Okay. So, issue number seven, titled 1971-4860.2. And really, there's also an epilogue in there, too. But that seems to be, uh, that seems to be the thing. Because it mainly deals with uh, two time periods. Although they slip a third one in there. Um, depending upon how closely you want to cut things. Okay, published date, July 2015. The writer, art, and essentially all created production by John Byrne. Star Trek and Assignment Earth, created by Gene Roddenberry. So that backdoor pilot that they did with the uh, Taz episode, Assignment Earth, uh, apparently Gene had the good idea for that. And, you know, the more I read these Assignment Earth variations uh, in both uh, comic book form and in the novels that they're continuing to produce Star Trek novels. It's like, darn, I wish that was a real TV series. Anyway. Uh, Guardian of Forever, created by Harlan Ellison, edited by Chris Royale. Okay, so the cover. The cover is made up of four photos from Taws that are arranged on top of a space backdrop with a nearby blue planet. Uh, and also the uh, the Enterprise and an unfamiliar device, maybe a ship, is, is also in the background. So two of the photos are headshots of Captain Kirk and Gary Seven. The third is a photo of the Enterprise that has been doctored up to make her look like she's moving through space very quickly. Uh, the final photo, photo features Spock, Scotty, and an odd-looking animated alien with pursed Trump-like lips. Spock's hands uh, is at her or his head, uh, so he is either caressing her or doing a mind meld. Not sure which. Well, I guess we'll find out. Story one, 1971. The story starts with Captain Kirk talking to the Guardian of Forever, 
and talking, uh, talking it into using its time travel abilities to ferry Captain Kirk on an incredibly important mission. The Guardian says his mission is impossible for one man. Kirk replies that is exactly why he must secure, secure the aid of an ally while jumping through the portal to another place, another time. The story's title page makes it plain that this is Star Trek and an Assignment Earth crossover story, and they're both created by Gene Roddenberry. Gary Seven is in his Manhattan office, speaking to his associate, Roberta Lincoln, via the Beta 9 computer. They say their goodbyes as Roberta will be spending Thanksgiving with her parents without Gary. Kirk enters Gary's offices via his transportation device that, keeps, that he keeps behind an imposing-looking bank vault uh, door. Seven is shocked to see Kirk entering his secret man cave, but the Beta-9 confirms his identity, so Seven skips deploying security countermeasures. Kirk begins explaining why he is there and ultimately what he wants with Seven. Ten days ago, relative to Kirk's frame of reference, the Enterprise picked up a passenger at Starbase 14. Ambassador Zaxo of the Doraxian people was beamed aboard with Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Scotty all in their dress uniforms to greet him. We find out that the six we find out that six months ago the Federation was at war with the Ambassador's people. Though the Federation clearly was on the winning side, Scotty is annoyed by how the Ambassador places conditions on the captain and crew that are disrespectful, particularly to the female crew members. Later on the bridge, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are discussing the strange Doraxi and the effects the Ambassador is having on their crew. Spock explains the Duraxi religion teaches them that each Duraxi is literally the sum of all the relatives that came before them, an extremely familial form of reincarnation. Just before Kirk gives the order to break orbit for Berencia III colony, Ahura informs Kirk that the Duraxi delegation wants Kirk to beam down to the Duraxi compound on the planet to discuss urgent special orders. Kirk beams down alone to a burnt and barren landscape with no one in sight. Kirk explains to Seven that the planet Starbase 14 Kirk explains that to Seven that the planet Starbase 14 was located on was utterly decimated when just minutes prior it was a peaceful, tranquil world. He eventually found some natives on the planet, but no Federation base was ever there. They were hanging on to life after being viciously attacked by the Duraxi. Seven comments on the Duraxi being known for their treachery even in the 20th century, but he asks if it was a sneak attack. Kirk answers it was much more incredible an attack than that. The Duraxi traveled back in time and destroyed the human race in 1971. Seven says this year... Sorry. Seven says this year and asks Beta 5 to report on any Duraxi activity in the system. The Beta 5 replies the nearest Duraxi vessel is 3.6 light years away. 
Seven says it's almost the end of November, so the attack has to happen in the next five weeks if it is to happen in 1971. In response to Seven's question, why the Draxi attacked the planet where Starbase 14 would never be built, Kirk said they did more than that. They destroyed every world the Federation was to have colonized. Thousands of planets bombed back into the Stone Age. Kirk was able to walk the Duraxi. Kirk was able to walk to the Duraxi base, where he stole a ship that brought him to the planet of the Guardian of Forever. There, Kirk found the Guardian remembered him, and after some convincing, gave Kirk a chance to correct the time stream, as the Guardian did once before. Seven says this world would be a good. Seven says this would be a good time for Kirk to tell about how he knows of the Guardian of Forever. Kirk tells Seven of the events that took place in my personal favorite Star Trek Taws episode of all time, City on the Edge of Forever. The Beta 5 computer breaks into the conversation, warning them that the Duraxi ship has changed course for Earth at high warp and will arrive in 46 hours. Kirk says the Duraxi ships were not capable of those speeds even in his day. Beta 5 displays the ship and says it is more advanced by 200 years than Captain Kirk's time. Given that, they are traveling too fast. Seven concludes they are pushing their ship beyond the safety margins. They do not intend to make a return trip. Beta 5 reports that if they maintain that speed... 95% of the crew will be dead. Definitely a suicide mission to get to Earth. Seven asks Beta 5 to keep monitoring them and tell them the minute that they enter orbit and send down a scout ship. Seven gives Kirk a chameleon device that makes people see what you want them to see. It's a fast way to deal with Kirk's uniform in the 20th century America. 46 hours later... 46 hours later, Beta 5 reports the Duraxi ship is in geosynchronous orbit over central Nevada with five life forms aboard. No scout deployed yet. Seven tells Kirk that ship is above a U.S. nuclear missile installation. They likely intend to launch, launch its missiles at the Soviet Union that will trigger a retaliatory automated missile strike that will result in a very short-lived but effective World War III. They use Seven's advanced teleporter they use Seven's advanced teleporter to beam them to the deserted town two clicks from the missile base in time to spot the Duraxi ship's landing at the far end of town. They take up positions from which they can stake out the ship without being spotted themselves. Suddenly, an old man with a shotgun that looks oddly like Byrne comes up behind them saying they won't let them take his claim. Seven is able to knock him out with his uber pen. Not knowing if the old prospector is the only one in the ghost town, Kirk and Seven decide they need to take out their Draxi threat as quickly as possible. They see the loading ramp being lowered. Three of the Duraxi disembark and see Kirk and Seven running out of their place of concealment to lead the aliens away from the old prospector. The Duraxi recognize Kirk and chase after them. 
Seven and Kirk have no idea how they could know who Kirk is, but they attempt to lead the Diraxi on a merry chase as long as they can distract them from their mission. It turns out the Diraxi can cover ground five times faster than humans, so they quickly catch up with Seven and Kirk. The Diraxi stun Kirk and Seven, then bring them back to their scout craft. When they come to, Kirk recognizes the leaders or the leader. <clears throat> when they come to, Kirk recognizes the leader as Ambassador Zaxo. Somehow he traveled back in time, but how? Zaxo does not object to telling Kirk and Seven their plans, since they will be both be dead soon, in true evil genius fashion. Not long after entering their quarters on the Enterprise, the Duraxi delegation snuck out and made their way to engineering. There, they put the ship into a time warp. The Duraxi went into a trance and reached back into the past to make contact with their father's father's father. Once there, they were able to launch their plan in the past to destroy the Duraxi people's greatest enemy before they came to be, just like in the Terminator. The Duraxi leader starts roughing up Kirk and Seven to find out how Kirk could have traveled into the past. Suddenly, a loud, double-barreled boom echoes in the scow ship. It was the old prospector who shot Zaxo mortally in the back with a load of buckshot. While screaming that no Martians are going to invade his planet, now with the odds evened up, Kirk and Seven are able to take down the other two Duraxi and sabotage the scout ship. They were able to get them and the old prospector away from the ship in time for a magnificent explosion. Seven explains to the old prospector that he will be a rich man, that when the crater cools down, there will be enough gold, silver, and platinum in it to set him up financially for life. Seven notices Kirk is gone. Kirk finds himself back in front of the Guardian of Forever. The timeline restored. Kirk is no longer needed in the past. The Guardian shows Kirk the Enterprise. With his communicator now working due to the Guardian's intervention, Kirk calls to Ohura and asks for a transport back to the ship. The end of story one. Okay, so sorry, long summary, but that is only the end of story one. So there's two more, although they're all a lot shorter. Story two, 4860.2. That's the title. The start of story two. Kirk is on the transporter pad, asking Scotty to beam him directly to the Diraxi compound. As Scotty activates the transporter, the ship shudders as if swatted by some unseen mighty hand. Sula reports they are in a time warp. Spock confirms and calls Scotty and the two red shirts to meet him in engineering. They arrive to find the ambassador Zaxo took over engineering and knocked out or killed all of Scotty's people. Scotty wants to snap Zaxo out of the trance he is in and throw him into the brig immediately. But Spock says not until they figure out what the Zaxo was up to. They figure out how he put engineering into a causal loop that only he can stop. 
but they still don't know why he did what he did. Spock decides to do a mind meld on Zaxo, but partway through he is attacked by Zaxo's shocking tentacles, which just come out of his body. Scotty gives the order to shoot Zaxo, who crumples to the ground like month-old haggis. Spock comes out of the mind meld with no lasting injuries and the key to getting the engines out of the causal loop. As they are commencing antimatter cooling, O'Hur reports the captain is asking for a beam-out, but says Spock will never guess from where. They travel for days to get to the planet of the Guardian of Forever and beam Kirk up. Kirk briefs them on what happened to him and goes to the bridge to contact the Duraxi delegation. The delegation leader explains they knew of the ambassador's duplicity, but could not stop the ambassador given his status and position in the Duraxi society. Instead, they calculated a single person in a transport beam at the moment of the time warp initiation would find themselves in the new timeline with their memories intact. Kirk is angered because there is no way the Duraxi could have known he would transport across in exactly the correct moment. Since Kirk is obviously alive, and he did beam across at the correct time, there was no apologies coming from the delegation leader. However, he did accept Kirk's sarcastic thanks without flinching. They close the channel, and McCoy enters the bridge, wondering how bored Kirk became waiting two days for their arrival. Kirk says he managed just fine, given he spent the weekend in New Orleans in 1885. Not quite the end. Epilogue. Kirk is walking through the quiet streets of Andrew 4-6, midday on their New Year's Eve, wondering who summoned him here. Kirk thinks the word summon is too strong a word. When a silver-haired man calls to the captain, saying it's been a long time. It's Gary Seven. While older, since the last time he saw him, two weeks ago, Gary bids Kirk to enter his quarters. He explains that Earth has been self-sufficient for years, so his bosses have reassigned him to a new world where his special set of skills would be of use. Gary says he waited 200 years for Kirk to catch up to him, to tell him what happened to the Duraxi mothership. Gary figured the captain would be curious. With no one left aboard to control it, the last of the crew died of oxygen starvation and it fell out of orbit in 1972. It burned up over Alberta, Canada. Seven pours them a drink to celebrate their victory, a rare vintage from 1971. As they enjoy the tranya, a silken female voice from the doorway into the room asks 194 if he has saved any for her. Seven calls the newcomer Isis. As Kirk turns to behold her, all he can say is, Isis? Oh my. The end. Yep. So, <laughs> so you figure Kirk's going to make a move on Isis. Well, of course. Oh my. Is it the same? Is she also immortal? Uh, apparently so. Well, okay. Seven is not immortal, I don't think. He's just old. But he's very long-lived. Because right. of a selective genetic, uh, you know, breeding or whatever. 
Well, he's but human. I don't he think was he's human, immortal. right? He was like he is human. He was brought up as a boy or whatever, and yeah. manipulated and trained to be the exactly. So his grandfather, Lord, his grandfather's grandfather's grandfather, was taken from Earth, and they had multiple generations of humans that they tinkered with their uh, DNA right. to create a superior human. That apparently one of the benefits is long life. Um, right. But of course, they probably have amazing medical technology too. So between all of that, uh, Gary gets to live a long time. But I don't think he is immortal. Right. So and then Isis obviously has a cat. So <laughs> that can turn humans. So. Hey, wonderful, wonderful cat. Yeah, I just hope I just hope they updated her outfit. Oh, you didn't like the old outfit? It, uh, <laughs> it was it was kind of a schlocky, slinky black cat outfit. It's like one of those things where, you know, how they have a sexy maid outfit that you can buy, uh, you know, for a Halloween costume. Sure. Well, this is like the sexy cat outfit. It looks a little schlocky, and she's got the ears and stuff. Right. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. So, what did you think of the story overall? I I liked it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I, I'm a big fan of the whole Gary Seven thing. Uh, I thought the casting, I, I don't know the guy's name, the actor's name. I, I was going to look it up, but I didn't. But I think he is, like, perfect as Gary Seven. And I just wish they would have been able to uh, get the green light to do more with uh, that whole idea. Yeah, that would have been good. I, I think that that would have made a good TV show. I think so, too. I kind of wish they would revive it into a movie or well, it could be its own franchise now. They're redoing so many things with Star Trek. I mean, uh, uh, j- just before we started recording, uh, we just saw um, a thing. It's official. Um, CBS is going to have a second TV show on their all-access network, and it's going to be uh, the continuing ve- uh, adventures of uh, Picard, uh, probably Captain Picard, probably on the uh, – Enterprise E. So thumbs up if they're doing that. And supposedly they have like at least three other shows supposedly in development. Who knows which one of those will actually come to be. Would be cool if one of them was uh, Assignment Earth. You know, don't hold your breath. But Right. But I think Assignment Earth could stand on its own. and doesn't have to have the Star Trek name associated with it for it to be a good show. I completely agree. And, and if they don't have the Star Trek name on it, then then it's not going to get the people to – some people are turned off on Star Trek just because they're like, well, I don't – I've never watched the other one, so I'm not going to start now right. kind of thing. Whereas if they threw an Assignment Earth TV show on, on CBS or something like that and not say that it's uh, associated with Star Trek, then I think, I think it could work. I think it could work. I think another thing is they could associate it with Star Trek and uh, you, know, you get a built-in – audience, whatever size it happens to be, that are in alignment with the kind of uh, entertainment the show would be. Right. And, of course, anybody that, uh, that's familiar with Taws is immediately going to know what it is. Right. So, but, and if they don't know what it is, I mean, the Internet's going to tell them. Yeah. <laughs> right? So I mean, then, it's not like right. they can keep secrets anymore. You can't, you, can't have, you can't have a crossover and not know about it. Two years in advance, that right. you know, oh, Split and uh, Unbreakable are in the same universe, you know. Oh, and, right, right. And yeah. everybody knew that way before the movie actually came out. Right. Um, so, yeah, 
So I don't know. I, th- I think it w- I think it would have been a good procedural. You know, every ep- every episode could be its own standalone story. It, it sure. would have made a really good TV show. I think so. And all these other expanded universe things that we've gotten have been really good. John Byrne did a uh, a mini series on um, Assignment Earth, right? Yep. Yes, he did. Yeah, that was a really good one. Um, I don't remember all the details of it, but yeah, I do. I remember that. And, it was that, set in like different – each each issue was like years apart, right? So it was like when that assistant was young, was in the first issue, yeah. and then the, she got older throughout the thing. And then like the last issue, she was like 80 years old or something like that. Right. And no longer working with him. Yeah. No, that was good. John Byrne obviously likes uh, bringing in these characters. Oh, yeah. And why not? Yeah. You know, I mean, th- this is this is a great. I think this is a great way for him to uh, just have a, a a mountain of material to work with. You know, there's this character that was brought in and did this. Well, what happened to them after the episode? Hmm. Any good stuff there? Uh, yes. And then you know he launches off on uh, on his creative whims, which sometimes yeah. turns into good things. Sometimes eh, not as good. But it, right. it's all good. It's just some work better than others. And here he gets to actually guest star with him. So he got to spend <laughs> some screen time with both Gary Seven and Kirk. Yes. So he was the old prospector. I'm pretty sure that's him. Yeah. It, again. I mean, if you, compare, if you compare the old prospector to the guy in the Borg. Uh, that's definitely the same guy. Exactly. So it's like, come on. Yeah. So uh, I like how the story was told. I didn't need all the flashbacks when, no. when Kirk had to tell Gary Seven about the uh, city Guardian. at the edge of forever. Yeah, uh, the Guardian episode. of Forever. Right. Yeah. So there, that that was an unneeded flashback about him about talking about the episode. I mean, they did it brief, and then they made the joke about. I think you've left out some stuff, but we've all seen it several times now. Exactly. So. Right. Um, and but then I liked how. The second story was really explaining what happened the second Kirk beamed down, and then how the third story was obviously just kind of what happened in the future right. or near future. But right. uh, I really liked uh, how the, the two stories kind of mirrored each other. One was what happened to Kirk when he beamed down, and the other yep. one was what happened to the Enterprise after he exactly. beamed down. Exactly. So events from different characters' viewpoint, which is important because that gives the whole story. Right. Yeah, I did think the aliens looked a little weird. A lot of times they look like black blobs with um, the weird face just posted on it. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it before what I said about sometimes ships are just drawn, like that one that had uh, Captain Pike and his crew. Mm-hmm. So that that ship looked pretty cool. That generational ship, that used generational ship, but obviously it was animated and. Likewise, these aliens are obviously animated, uh, and they do look weird, and it's just a weird-shaped head and everything. But I will say that the spaceship they used to be able to go really fast and get to Earth back in 1971, it's animated too, but it looks at least a little more towards the realistic end of the spectrum. The one that lands on Earth or the one that was in orbit? The one in orbit. Oh, okay. So it's on the, the one cover. that lands on Earth look looks on really cover. weird. Yeah, if you look at the one on the cover. So I think that one is a good an example of something that at least looks like it might be a little bit more towards something realistic. At least, you know, the, the texture of the outside of the ship. Right. But I completely agree with you. The landing ship looks weird. Uh, the ship that Kirk stole 
looks weird. Uh, obviously animated. Right. Um, yeah, missing all detail. There's no. It's just like a. They had some shapes and they put the that skin on it, and that yep. was it. I agree. Scale skin, kind of. Exactly. Um. But overall, I really enjoyed this one. I thought it was good. Uh, I like the idea of him being able to send his mind back into his ancestor because they believe in the reincarnation. I thought that was a cool little twist on reincarnation. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was a bit of a stretch, but yeah, at least they attempt to explain it. Uh, so it, it didn't actually tra- physically transport the ambassador back. He was able to somehow communicate while in the time warp back to his ancestor. And basically, what he took over his ancestor. I don't right. know, whatever it was. Yep. But it, it was a little bit... At least it wasn't out-and-out time travel. Right. Right. And I, and I liked how the... Uh, I liked how... I mean, I thought that was just a good explanation. It's something I'd, I'd never seen before. And so anytime they can put a new twist on time travel or whatever, I, I, I dug it. Yeah. No. And it also explained why they were so adamant about destroying Earth because – because they're talking about this war, which I've never, ever heard of. No. Uh, but they're saying that the – Sounds like it was short-lived. Lost the war and now they're uh, wanting revenge or whatever. So yeah. that was a little weird. But but again, I, I thought it was interesting. I think they're giving the impression that the Federation was pretty much outclassed them and uh, it, I don't think it was a long war. Right. But they were bitter about it, and so they were going to well, go back bitter. and completely destroy them out of history. And, right, and not only destroy them. Destroying Earth probably was going to be good enough, right? Um, but no, they have to spend their munitions, their resources to go and bomb the living bejesus out of, uh, what, thousands of worlds? Out of spite? Right, that wouldn't even know what the Federation is. No, it's like that's a bit overboard. Right, I think you know. Okay, so yeah, go ahead and destroy Vulcan. Okay, just to be on the safe side. Yeah, I I don't think you need to destroy thousands of worlds. They're no. bad dudes. They are bad dudes. They they are not nice people. But it turns out that it's it's really just the ambassador and and whatever people he has. Everybody else is fine. They actually helped Kirk in the end, which I thought was kind of weird. Well, it's the ambassador and everybody that comes after the ambassador in that timeline. Well, he was able to talk the rest of his people apparently into joining him on his genocidal journey. Right. But fortunately, the uh, the timeline has been restored and they're all happy now. Exactly. And willing to help. Everyone's happy. And now Kirk knows where to go back and find Seven. In case he wants a a drink with a former comrade. Right. And a cat. And a hot cat. Exactly. Yeah, so uh, I thought it was a good crossover. You know, the two heroes working together. That was cool. And I'm just amazed that they had enough footage of Gary Seven out of that one episode, Assignment Earth of Taws, to have him. I mean, he's doing a lot of stuff here. Yeah. No, they got him doing a lot of stuff. Yeah. yeah, I wonder how much of it is a body double that he's taking pictures of, and then they just put Gary Seven's face on it. Right. Another thing, maybe it's stuff from the actor in other movies, too. That's possible. Um, 
you don't know. Because really, a lot of what he's doing is taking the head and just putting it on different bodies. Right. Um, yeah, I'm impressed. It must take forever to go through every frame yeah. of uh, footage to try to find just the right just the right version of Kirk and just the right version of whoever in each right. panel. Yep. I completely agree. I, I my hat is off to him for doing this. Oh yeah. This this is amazing. Now mind you, some panels are kinda schlocky, which you can tell he probably didn't spend as much time on because he didn't think it was as important to the story. But some right. of the panels are just really well done. Right. Uh, and, and I really love the 100% animated panel on page 29 where the uh, – Explosion? Dr- exactly. So, so the Dirac scout ship blows up, and those three are running away from it, and there's just a huge fireball of orange and yellow behind them. And I think that looks great. Yeah. No, that looks like, like what you would see in an action movie. Yep. Everybody's jumping away from the explosion in slow motion. Exactly. And hair is in the air and – uh, it's just, it's pretty good. Pretty good stuff. Yeah. No, out of all of them, I think this is probably my favorite one so far. Yeah. Uh, all the different issues of Burns? Uh, uh yeah. Books? Okay. So up, up to the, the, these seven issues plus the one annual. Right. Uh, this is my favorite. So out of the eight we've read so far, this is my favorite. Right. Uh, I agree. I agree. Oh, you mentioned the possibility of them actually doing maybe, uh, an Assignment Earth TV show. Why not? Uh, especially CBS All Access is doing that kind of stuff. But what if they were able to bring Seven into uh, just like one episode of Discovery or something? I would think it's probably unlikely, but they're established that Seven is around for hundreds of years. And by the time Discovery started, he would have already have left Earth and gone on to his new assignment. Um, So they could bump into him. I mean, they brought Mud back. They'll bring other characters back. I'd be kind of interested. If Assignment Earth could not get its own TV series, I think having Seven pop up and Roberta Lincoln in Discovery would be interesting. I think a little bit more far-fetched would be Picard, because that's even further in the future. Right. So Seven would be even older. But with Discovery, that would make a little more sense from a time period standpoint. And you're saying get the same actor? No, he can't do that. Well, he's probably still alive. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. But that, that, that's an interesting point. I mean, you, if he was still alive, you might be able to get him. He was, I really, like, like I said before, I think he was great casting. Right. But as we see, they were able to cast a pretty, at least from a photo standpoint, uh, a good-looking replacement for Pike. Uh, yeah, he I'm sure they good could, so far. I'm sure they could find a different um, actor for, for Seven. Yeah, it would be interesting to see if if they could do do more of that. Uh, so, what other episodes would make good Discovery episodes? I mean, oh, what other characters uh, or things yeah, to pull forward? Right. Oof. Uh, well, uh, there'd be quite a few. And since it's an alternate future, they. I mean, I don't know. I still don't believe that Discovery is part of the normal timeline, the prime timeline. Right. They keep saying it is. But obviously, it completely looks like a, a JJ verse show, right? Which isn't one hundred percent a bad thing. Um, it just is a little shocking to continuity, um, right? And I mean, with uh, Pike wearing the the gold and everything, yeah. uh, at least they're attempting. They're I guess attempts. it could still fit in, right? I just never got the feeling from the original series that the Klingon Earth War was that bad. 
Yeah, where, this is, it's pretty bad. You know, eighty percent of the galaxy was overrun by Klingons just a short time ago. That, right. That's 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 a little hard to believe in the normal Prime universe. Yeah. So was it ten years later? So right. So, yeah. So ten years. Only, was... Yeah. So only ten years later, we we built back and we're we. I mean, eighty percent was taken over. Uh, that's a lot of damage. Uh, it's a lot of lost ships. That's a lot of lost planets. So, well, the end of season one, where they just the Klingons just went back home. I thought that was a little hard to swallow, but whatever. If you accept all that, that's fine. But now you've got a decimated Federation, right. and ten years later, we're going to be built back, and nobody even talks about it. Right, exactly. Like yeah, I mean, look at look at uh, you know Europe in between World War One and World War Two. I mean, it 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 didn't bounce back. Uh, no, it, it it came back obviously, but it it took right. a while. Right. But uh, but there was still always remnants of World War One, even before World War Two started, yeah. and that was that was just one planet, not a whole quadrant. Right. All right. So that's the last. That's the last thing I had to say. Okay. I mean, there's more things I could say. I'm not gonna. All right. Fine. All Keep right. it to yourself. Be that way. Can. Just be that way. That's going to leave us all wondering, what else could Ken have said? <laughs> oh, really? No. Okay, I, I'll let you know the last one. I think Seven's red, kind of red-orange suit jacket at the end is pretty cool. Uh, the shimmery one? The shimmery one. That yeah. kind of has the, uh, like, tails in the back. Almost looks like a uh, a Groucho Marx outfit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's coming back in style. Hey, I think that looks good. He's really out there. <laughs> yeah, he, he looks ready for the discotheque. I'm not quite sure, but anyway. Well, since we're talking about outfits, I like how Byrne probably recognized that he didn't have enough footage of Kirk in the suit. Oh, right. To fill out the episode. So he just made up the thing about the chameleon circuit so that everybody sees him in a suit when in reality sure. he's wearing the, the, the Federation garb. Right. But, but, yeah, so how much of that was – I think Byrne could have pulled it off given I mean he time. obviously did with Seven, so. Exactly. Um, I think he could have pulled it off, but he chose not to. Uh, and maybe that was just from a practical standpoint. Uh, or, you know, who knows? Maybe he really thought he couldn't get enough – he didn't have enough action poses or right. something to work with. But but you can see the final panel where Kirk is saying, oh my, look at him. At the very least, his right arm with the drink in his hand, that's animated, 100%. And probably the shadow that it casts across his chest is animated, but that is Kirk's head. Right. So Byrne can do amazing things. Uh, I mean, who knows? Maybe even the entire torso is animated, but I don't think so. It looks a little off, but yeah. Does it look a little off? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so it might have been. But but it's so good. He does such a good job on it. You can't quite tell for sure. But the main point is he's a master of uh, mixing the um, real photo clips together with animated stuff. And sometimes it doesn't work, like the animated ambassador. But most times it's hard to tell. Right, and even when it is easy to tell, like you know, when they're standing next to the fence, and the fence obviously looked fake compared to where they were. I mean, it, it it's never distracting enough 
that you're like takes you out of the story. Yeah. The story's still good enough. The animation is good enough to to allow you to suspend your disbelief or whatever and uh, enjoy the show. Right. Okay. Cool. Okay, now we're done. All right. So uh, next week or next episode, why don't we do a little something different and move on to Star Trek Next Generation Mirror Broken. Ah, good idea. So we got like six issues. So we could actually break it up into two episodes. Uh, yeah, I believe so. I yeah. believe uh, yeah. So we got uh, issue zero, which was a free free issue, and then uh, one through five. Yeah. 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 Sounds good. So, All right. So we'll do zero, one, and two next week. Sounds good. Excellent. Cool. I love this because it's uh, by the Tiptons, who uh, you know I'm a big fan of their artwork. Yep. Well, okay. Tiptons no, are the Tiptons writers. No, Tiptons are the. I mean, uh, Woodward. The Tiptons are the writers, but Woodward. The, right. Uh, exactly. By Woodward. Right. The. Uh, the watercolory look that I like. Exactly. You love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I've been wanting to read this for a while. So this, yeah. is, this will be good. All right, Ken. Well, thank you for wow. uh, help, helping us with this issue, these uh, photo montages. I, I do like those. Oh, you're welcome, Donovan. And for I like how you, you being a kid when photo novels were a thing. Yeah. I always get a little bit out of it from you, where you're, you're telling us how it was in the old days. Back when I was a youngin, and we didn't yeah. have VCR tapes. That's right. Between the audio recordings I made with my old cassettes, I had a whole shoebox full of them, and uh, these photo novels, uh, I got the audio and I got the video, and the video was pretty much just the photo, photo novels, which were just rehashes of the episodes. Right. So, yeah, I, my childhood's a little similar. I, you know, like when a new movie came out, I always bought the uh, comic book, you know, the Marvel, DC, uh-huh. whoever was making the adaption of the the, com- the movie. Okay. Because, you know, eventually it would come out on VHS or HBO or something like that. But that's a long time to wait. So you had to buy the comic book to read over and over again to tide you over until you mm-hmm. watch it in some other home media so exactly similar to your but not but maybe not exactly but you fancy pants had videotapes didn't you <laughs> eventually not in the beginning ah pasha. all right <laughs> all right ken i'll talk to you next week okay sounds great donovan thank, you, thank everybody. you everybody for listening there you go later bye Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic, second name Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.